Oh, hello. Welcome back. I am so excited to introduce you, possibly, maybe you already follow him, to one of my favorite history TikToker, Instagrammer speakers. His name is Ernest Krim III. He goes by Mr. Krim3 everywhere on social media. And if you don't already, you should follow him. He focuses his, all of his intention on black history and he does it in such a powerful way. He's so entertaining to listen to. He has his own personal story that he recounts in his book called Black History Saved My Life. It's incredibly powerful. Just like 10 out of 10 recommend him as a human being. And then of course, by extension, this episode. He's gonna teach me about a guy named Sam Harris. We don't clarify this till later in the episode, but there is a very famous like public podcaster philosopher today, atheist named Sam Harris. Uh, that's not who we're talking about. We're talking about Sam Harris, a formerly enslaved black man who became one of the richest or the richest person in Williamsburg, Virginia. And this story that neither of us, both kind of experts in this type of history, had literally never heard of. So I hope you enjoy the episode and make sure that you're going and following Mr. Krim. He's incredible. Welcome to Antisocial Studies. I'm really excited because today I have Mr. Krim, Ernest Krim III, um, but on social media, it seems like you go by Mr. Krim. Is that right? Yeah. You know, the teacher, I, I can't leave my past behind. I'm still a teacher <laughs> at heart, so it's Mr. Krim wherever I go. See, this is funny because I work at a really kind of strange school that calls teachers by their first name. So I get, <laughs> I, they call me Emily. So I get really freaked out when people call me Miss Glankler. I'm like, oh, but, but anyway, um, so I'm really excited. We've done some stuff together. You're all over social media. So if you don't already follow Mr. Krim, you should. He focuses on black history and you're really big on Instagram and TikTok. You also speak and you've written two books, which mm -hmm. is incredibly impressive to me. Um, so you're from Chicago. This is kind of like the basic website bio. And you've written one book, Black History Saved My Life, which is about a personal experience that you had. And then the ABCs of Affirming Black Children, which is that a children's book? Yes, but I've it's been amazing. promoting it as almost a family book. And I think I'm going to, I don't know if that genre exists. So if it doesn't, it let's say I created it. But, yeah. it, but, it, but it's because I think that the people I discuss and, and the, the words and the terms I use, although like, yeah, you can read it to kids, it's, it's pretty short. But mm -hmm. I think that there are adults who don't know some of those people, right? Like I, I learned some of those people recently. And also too, some of the words I used, I just found out when I was writing it because I strategically wanted to pick words that I thought kids should be exposed to at a young age. So yeah. it's a family book. I love that. I love that category because there are a lot of like kids books that I get for my son <laughs> that will be like, like I have a whole book about Eleanor Roosevelt. No, not mm. Eleanor Roosevelt, about um, Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. And it's totally not a book that Leon went and chose. <laughs> it's only one that I chose and want to like read alongside him. So that makes total yeah, sense. I found content in some of my kids books before. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> it's great. It's like, it's like TikTok. I tell even in my yeah. AP classes, I'm like, if you can write like a children's book version of this historical event in a way that makes yeah. sense, then you know it. You really exactly. understand it. Totally. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's amazing. Is there anything else you want to add kind of to your bio beyond what was on your website? <laughs> Uh, no, I, I think that's great. I really, honestly, I hate bios because um, people, are, when you speak virtually or whatever, people are like, so tell me who you are. I'm like, I just, I like history, yeah. I like black history. <laughs> yeah. um, they like to, you got to give people all these little tangible things that impress them. And it's like, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm only as impressive as the impact I make today. So I love know. that. I should have also mentioned you were a classroom teacher for over a decade, right? That's, yes, that's yes. 12 too. years, public school, all high school, two years at an alternative school. Cool. Um, I've earned my stripes, taught yes. U.S. history every single year while, tr while trying my best to include these stories of black history, Latino history, women's history and everything else. 
That's amazing. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm really excited because when I asked you, like, is there something you want to teach me about? You mentioned a person and I've never heard of him before, which is exactly what this podcast I think is about. So who are you going to talk to me about today? Yeah, we're going to talk about Sam Harris. And I thought this was important because I think uh, not only is it a pretty interesting story, but also too, it's something I just learned when I was mm. in Williamsburg, Virginia. And I, and I want to make that point too, because I think people assume that as history teachers that we know everything, especially with the followings we have, people yeah. think that we're just know-it-alls. <laughs> and really what we are is we are just probably the most curious people you'll ever meet. And mm -hmm. I know for me, probably for you too, we know how to word a Google search better than most people. <laughs> and uh, and so like, if, if I just learned that I'm assuming a lot of other folks don't because there's not a lot of information about them out there. And I want us to just continue to be encouraged to be lifelong learner, learners. I love that. That's amazing. And that's partly why I'm switching partly to this format is that, you know, again, on TikTok, I've been introduced to so many experts, but I, you don't get to then have a conversation with them. And I, I'm with you. I think that everyone presents their best self on social media. So I'm only going to make a video about something I know about, obviously. Sure. And it's so <laughs> powerful for people to see like smart people going, oh, I don't know. I've never heard of that before. Because I think yeah. people think it's embarrassing. Like when, yeah. when they learn I'm a history teacher, they get like embarrassed that they don't remember things from history. And I'm like, it'd be kind of weird if you did as a <laughs> right. pharmacist or whatever it is you do. So um, great. Okay. So what's the, what, give me like the TikTok version of his life or what's interesting about him. And then mm. I'm excited to go off on a ton of tangents. Yeah. So Samuel Harris is essentially, he's this uh, black man who was uh, enslaved in Richmond, Virginia, and he gains freedom, of course, at the conclusion of the civil war. Mm. Um, he moved to Williamsburg, Virginia, and becomes one of the wealthiest men in the city, period. So oh. wealthy, in fact, that he helped finance the founding of uh, the largest bank in the town at the time, and he helped rebuild the College of William and Mary um, with his money, a college he couldn't even attend at the <gasps> time. Wait, whoa, yeah. okay, what? Yeah. Um, that's not the direction I thought this was gonna go. I didn't really have any guesses, but that's really fascinating. Do you, do you happen to know, do we know when he was born or like how old was he when emancipation occurred? Yeah, so he was in, I don't have an exact date, but he was in his 20s, okay. um, at least his 20s when he like moved to the area. So I wanna say he was either like late teens, early 20s. Yeah. And you know, Richmond and Williamsburg are in the area, so they're not too far from each other. And just contextually, Williamsburg was, you know, completely ravaged by uh, the Civil War, just in terms of it being like a stronghold for the Union Army. Um, a lot of things had to be rebuilt. So they were in a place of literally reconstruction following the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So he goes there for opportunity and he found some. There were some folks who were very embracing and there were some folks who couldn't believe that this black guy was trying to uh, assert himself in that manner. So. Wow. So how does, okay. So yeah, t now I want to, I have a 30 questions, but <laughs> um, yeah. Tell me like, how does he go from being, you know, enslaved to one of the wealthiest men in this city? Yeah. So he moves there with his wife in 1872. So um, I'm big on like dates and, you know, and points of history. So that's, you know, we would say seven years after chattel slavery ended. And he has $70 just that for inflation. It's a lot more than 70, of course, today, but it's still not a lot of money if you move into a new place. Yeah. And essentially, based on what I found, you know, and it's, it's very scarce information because we don't have a picture. I couldn't find any books on them. There's just local publications who provided information. And I found this out. Uh, shout out to Trish Thomas, who does walking tours in Williamsburg oh, for wow. anybody that's in the area. She taught me about this, and I went down that history teacher rabbit hole. <laughs> um, but I think just his mindset was, 
I have to create something. And what he created was something essentially called like the cheap store. And in my mind, it was like a modern day. Um, and, and I hate to even mention, well, I won't even mention them, but you know, one of those stores that sells everything at a like cheap price. Like a big box store. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like a, a big, a, a store that has, you can go there, like think of today, you can go there, get some coffee, get your eyes checked, get your taxes done, <laughs> go grocery shopping, yeah. get your sporting goods, get a car oil change too. One of those types of places. Um, or, and also to maybe like a modern day dollar store is what I envision mm -hmm. it. And so I, I'm, I'm assuming that he used the $70 he had to maybe like buy things and resell them, kind of like maybe a, a, a pawn shop or something like that. Mm. And this, this is kind of what his reputation becomes as a place where you can get anything and get some food and it's affordable. And this is kind of like on the main street in Williamsburg. And just like from that point, the reputation spread that this, this black guy or just this man in general has everything that we need. Wow. And um, was this was he serving both white and black, like both the white and black community? Was this like exclusively for like the black community in the town? Like, what is that like? Yeah, he was serving black and white folks during this time. Mm -hmm. and, and, wow. and, and, and again, going back to what I previously stated, he becomes from that one of the wealthiest men in this region. And I think, um, you know, from that time period, based on where he lived, in order to amass that much wealth, he had to you know, have uh, a clientele that included white folks and black folks. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking at an ad from that point in time, too. So this would be 1895. So this is roughly 20 years after he moved there. And, uh, and the ad says, big stock of spring goods has arrived. Um, September 13th, 1895. If you want ladies hats, flowers and ribbons, go to Harris's. So it's, it's referred to as Harris's, but it was like the cheap store. If you want laces, silks or satins, go to Harris's. If you want watches, clocks or jewelry, go to Harris's. If you want all wool suits of clothes at $3 per suit, imagine oh. that, go to Harris's. If you want straw hats or latest styles of all other kinds, go to Harris's and his model from what I found was cheaper than the cheap, cheaper than the cheapest and better than the best. Whoa, that's such a good motto. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. Yeah, he, right. so he's, I mean, I'm already picking up that he's just like a charismatic, he's a salesman. Like he, yeah. he knows how to sell what he's doing. He seems like clearly he's a charismatic person to come into this community and be able to establish himself with this reputation. And yeah, I guess it makes sense too that in this town that like you say is literally rebuilding, I mean, he gets in on the yep. ground floor and is like, well, there's some basic things that people need that after years and years of war might maybe aren't available. And he just, you know, steps yeah. into that vacuum. Yeah, and I think something that, you know, stood out to me while reading about him is I think he just, you know, there, there are certain ways, you know, in which we learn to navigate as black Americans. And, and I think um, there are some personality traits that sometimes, you know, uh, overlap communities or mm -hmm. would even maybe call some somebody who's racist to look past you, you, you know, to, for lack of a better term, um, mm -hmm. to, to look back, to look past what they deem to be a fault of yours. And he seemed to be extremely charismatic you know, for, yeah. you know, for what it's worth. And he was also a hustler. Like he had this mindset of, I have to get it by any means. I have to find a way to make this money. Um, and they describe his talent as making money. So <laughs> for me, the way I look at it, like is he would, he would literally probably find a way to flip anything that he came across to say, how can I sell this to help somebody out? Um, mm -hmm. And you think about it today, like there are so many people who build an enterprise 
you know, maybe like on, you know, um, social media stores or I know people who start social media pages and resell things and, yeah. you know, drop shipping and things like that. So for me, and, and, I, and I can't say like when people started to create these types of convenience stores, but I do know that what he did did come before these modern, uh, you know, iterations that we see of like the dollar store and things like that. So, yeah, especially, I mean, again, I don't know, I don't know exactly when either, but I do know that this kind of post-Civil War, 1870s, 1880s is when you have like the Sears catalog, which right. is literally like you order anything you need and that's really exciting. Yeah. Um, but then that's going to change to like brick and mortar stores. So it feels yeah. like he's right on the cusp because just for yeah. some general context for listeners, right? I mean, the American economy went through so much change in these last few decades. We went from basically a primarily agricultural kind of rural economy. We had this commercial yeah. revolution. So he's right on the yeah. cusp of this coming out of the Civil War of establishing like a brick and mortar store where people can walk in and get what they need. You don't have to send off to like the Wells Fargo wagon, right, to bring it in yeah, months yeah, later. Yeah. So that's so fascinating. So how was he? Well, I guess I don't know. Do we know how he was received? I mean, I'm. I'm frankly just kind of shocked that he was able to build a business like this in Virginia this right. soon after the Civil War. Yeah, and I was shocked, too, as I was learning about it. And, you know, I, I think of it like, you know, just metaphorically, if you can imagine a town that was like ravaged by a natural disaster is what I would imagine that area mm. looked like following the Civil War. In some ways, you know, people are, are desperate for things. So yeah. when he when he comes in, he's able to, you know, essentially take advantage of the state of you probably all you know not withstanding you have a lot of black folks in poverty but you have a lot of white folks too in poverty and if you come there with a you renewed mindset from the place you came and of course being enslaved he's like well i can set up shop here um and because of the condition they're in economically even again even the folks who are racist are probably going to look past it and say well he has what we need and he's exactly. right here so let's let's just welcome him in now he of course did have some detractors so like you know by 1902 uh the virginia constitution tried to enact a policy i can't i couldn't pinpoint the exact policy but they wanted to limit black enterprise um mm. they essentially tried to find a way to make it more difficult for black folks to set up shop to make money and he was still able to find a way to work around that. He unfortunately passed away in 1904. So, yeah. but it kind of lets you know too. Now, this is that's the racial nadir period too, when you have a lot of white Americans who are trying to restore this supremacy. Um, but so he was able to create more of an opportunity following the Civil War than he probably would have been had he emerged in the early 1900s. So he did have his detractors, but I think the support you know, was was just so overwhelming that it, he was able to um, get past that. Yeah, that's really interesting because, and I, I was going to, this is a, I was going to call it a honeymoon period, and that is not the right phrase, but it's yeah. like the desperation period of, like you say, the rebuilding right immediately after the Civil War where, you know, if you really need a hat, you really need fabric, you really need a tool, whatever, yeah. like you just don't have the quote unquote luxury of discriminating as much where you're yeah. like, well, this is the only place I can get it anytime soon. Yeah. And so, yeah, like you say, weirdly, if it had been 20 years later after the South had been somewhat rebuilt and all of these kind of white supremacist institutions had been fully re-entrenched, he probably wouldn't have been able to set up and start the way that he did. But that's yeah. so, um, man, this is going to be maybe a really obvious thing to say, but coming from slavery, no education, do we, I mean, I don't, do we know if he could read and write? Like, because to be able to turn around and become a successful business person in that environment shows just extreme kind of natural intelligence, right? Yeah. To be able to come with no really formal training, I'm assuming, 
and turn that into a really successful business is yeah I, I don't, i'm not sure how you know the degree of his formal education um yeah. like black you said and i would assume that you in order to so there are ways you can make money during that time without you know being able to read or write it would be of course yeah. more difficult sure. but i would think with him being the, the leader of this enterprise and being at the forefront he had to have something uh, and of mm -hmm. course probably has some people that could help him out and everything but he had to have some type of formal education from my perspective but that also leads me to the fact that he um became so he did more than just that so he had this store but he you know he he owned upwards of 400 acres of land he had you know horse stables he had barbershops he had other things like that were right uh right near this business and he also was a school board member he was a trustee and, uh, and with that he was advocating for you know black education so it wasn't yeah. that he just had this business and he wasn't involved in politics at all which you know something along the lines of what booker t might advocate for just worry about your enterprise mm. he was dabbling in both so he's advocate so I, and i would assume from that perspective he had to have some type of education i wish there was more about what he did prior to because then we might find that he maybe had a similar story to a frederick Douglass in terms of how he taught himself but then yeah. even with being on that board and not being admitted to the local college, the College of William and Mary, he um, helps finance the reconstruction of that with his wealth, a school he couldn't even get into at the time. Wow. So he is he is like a local mogul. Right. And he's a local, you know, basically big guy in the town. Like he's on the school board. He's, you know, one of probably the wealthiest people, wealth, you know, biggest landowners. He's kind of charitable donation, financing, building these schools. And yet, like you say, he wouldn't have been allowed to attend that school. Who knows, even like sitting on the school board, um, you know, if he, I, I, I'm assuming in Virginia that they at that point were, were establishing like segregated schools, right? Because obviously yeah. we have, during the Reconstruction era, we have the Freedmen's Bureau that's coming down and trying to set up um, educational opportunities for black people. But then once, right, once the federal government sort of leaves yeah. and stops enforcing that, we're going to fall right back into kind of what we had before. So again, he really does, though, I'm glad you mentioned Booker T. Washington, because he seems without knowing very much about him, like a sort of poster child for what Booker T. Washington was trying to argue, which is that, you know what, in this sort of capitalist industrial economy, like money talks. And if you yeah. want people to listen to you and if you want to have influence, like one of the most efficient ways to do it is to build a business and make yourself kind of indispensable to just like the economic community. And then, yeah. like like we're saying, they'll kind of have to pay attention to you because you have what they need. Uh, yeah. But it sounds like he took it even further than that. Wow. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. Yeah, because I, I think amazing. like you said, it's he probably went in from the perspective of once I lay this foundation, then I can do what I want and, and, and there's, you know, essentially nothing they'd be able to do to reject it because, you know, just like I, I previously pointed out with them trying to enact new laws to restrict black enterprise, um, the tour guy was explaining to me how they were attempting to even put in laws that restricted like, you know, voting access and, mm -hmm. you know, you had to have property and things like that. But because he has so much wealth, a lot of those laws didn't apply to him because if you're going to say we have to own property and so on and so forth to be able to vote, well, okay, I do. He's and I, good. Own, yeah. I own his <laughs> several properties. So, like, so yeah. now what? So, and at the same time, it also shows just you know what what the what the system can do, whether it be locally, statewide, or nationally, to restrict um, you know black economic or social progress in this country if they notice you know uh, what you're doing. And I think he's also a great example of finding ways, like find out the easiest way to get in the door first, mm -hmm. and then you can open up all the other doors that have been locked. 
100%. Yeah, I think I think he is such a great, um, you know, counter example to anyone at the time, I want to be really clear, I'm not suggesting this is true, but anyone at the time who felt like, well, black people are just to some extent, less capable of becoming business owners or whatever. And it's like, you take someone who had essentially, I mean, who had nothing, they were enslaved, right? And if you just like open the door, all you had to do was open the door. This guy made it. He figured it all out himself. I'm assuming yeah. with very little help from institutions. Yeah. And all that had to happen was that people didn't get in his way right. and he was able to build it. And now immediately then after that, of course, people start trying to get in their way <laughs> and yeah. say, oh, shoot, they can do that. Okay, actually, we should try to restrict business ownership. Yeah. We should, should try to restrict voting, right? Because obviously, if you don't have those formal policies in place like yeah, intelligence yeah. is gonna rise people are gonna i don't know i just think i mean i want to know more about him you said there's like yeah. no biographies of him yeah, i mean I, how I do did... we even know what we know so I, I think a lot of the local history was kept so i want to also yeah. give a shout out to uh daily press was the publication mm -hmm. i kept finding information about him on um also to the college of william and mary's website they have some information about him um, which, of course, that's pretty, that's all recently because, again, we have to put this in context. The College of William & Mary, second oldest college in this country, 1600s. They didn't let black people in to the 1950s. That's a long time. That's a very long time. <laughs> that's a long time. So I, I wonder, I wonder genuinely the minds. I, I can't imagine, like, either he came across it or maybe he was a friend white guy at the college was like, we're just, we're in peril. We don't have the resource. We can't rebuild the school. I wonder if he was asked or if he volunteered, maybe yeah. if it was the hope that his kids could go there or if it was just a good gesture. But like to kind of give you an example of how this history attempted to be lost when he passed away. And I think I said 1904, his wife takes over, uh, the, uh, takes over the company and what she does, and I want to give her name, Joanna, it's important to name her. Uh, she keeps her running through the 1930s. Hmm. And then Colonial Williamsburg is established. And so that's that's the city's attempt to, like, restore the history. Um, I got a chance to see it. It's a beautiful place. You see a lot of the early you know, parts of America there. But during that 1930s period, they're also relocating black businesses like we don't want your narrative to be a part of here so like the first baptist church was forced to move um they bought that they bought this um business and we, who knows what that means by but yeah. they demolished it so like the physical location could have potentially still been here and restored but wow. they got rid of it because that's not the narrative they wanted to have to make this colonial williamsburg essentially kind of tourist attraction right yeah and, and to make that a tourist attraction like separate from uh the, the black experience which you know now it's it's restored through different walking tours and people who are telling the stories but at that time period it's like well we don't we don't want this included um yeah. and, I, and i think that kind of is the reason why a lot of us you know don't know this story and you know even with a lot of our local history there are people who have done things like that in a lot of local places but of course mm -hmm. too not having the book um not having an actual you know photograph of him it makes it a lot more difficult yeah wow and that's cra i mean it's crazy that like the the business it seems like was continuing to be successful now i'm sure in the 1930s when the great depression hits right i'm sure that has an impact probably on their decision yeah. or being forced to sell but still the fact that i mean they continued this for what 50 ish years 40 years yeah. as a successful business even through like you said the the kind of reestablishment of these white supremacist institutions throughout virginia um 
Man, and he has, so he had kids. Do we know anything about kind of his descendants or what, what happened to them? So yeah, in terms of his children, Samuel Harris did make sure that he uh, left a lasting legacy. So he sent his son, Sam Jr., to Virginia State University, and he also paid for him to study at Harvard Medical School uh, to wow. prepare him for a Boston practice. And he was essentially a pioneer um, as an African-American medical specialist at this time period. So again, it wasn't just about what he could do for himself during that time. He made sure that he set up a good foundation for his kids. And yeah. his daughter, Elizabeth, um, she received an advanced education as well. Unfortunately, she died just a year after after her marriage to a prominent Hampton Institute administrator. And this man that she was married to, uh, Robert Martin, he actually succeeded Booker T. Washington as a president of Tuskegee, Univer of Tuskegee uh, Institute. Um, and, and, and during this time period, from what I read, you know, it should be said that it, the reason that he was able to get his kids this type of education was because of his economic access, yeah. um, especially during his time in which there were concerted efforts to make sure black children could not be educated. He had to go above and beyond. So this was not the norm during this time period. Yeah, totally. I mean, the fact that, I mean, okay, I'm trying to remember this joke. Uh, never mind. I'm going to cut it out. There's a, do you know what I'm talking about? There's a joke. It's either, I think it's Chris Rock and he jokes about how he's in like this incredibly nice neighborhood in LA and he's yeah, like yeah, my yeah, neighbor's yeah. just some random dentist <laughs> yep, yep. right and it's yep, it's yep. That, that's what this reminds me of right is that yep. it's like for just to get what is essentially owed to yep. kind of any white kid it's just like this natural yep. thing of course they get to go to school especially at this time in history but even today like black families have to be excellent they have to be yep. above and beyond to just be yep. able to meet these sort of like minimum requirements that like mm -hmm. can my can my son please go to this college can my son yeah. go to harvard medical school that's wild and i i do want to say too that it's really interesting to me that you know we don't find a ton about his kids right like we find you know the education they got and whatever but then they sort of fade mm -hmm. and i think it's also important for people to remember how rare it is that we remember people from history i think like think about the the amount of people that we know from history and then think about the billions of people who have ex existed on the planet and it's actually a really small percentage like this is something we forget about whenever I teach world history, it's even more stark because I'll mention them. I'll be like, okay, in this whole year, we learned about what? Maybe 40 civilizations, maybe. Mm. And I'm like, there are thousands. I mean, there's an, we don't even know how many civilizations existed that one, we just don't have time to talk about or two, we, we don't even know existed. And so I think this is a really good example of a guy who um, just because we didn't, we don't have a ton of documentation. We don't have people then following his story later on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that his children, who I'm, it sounds like at least the son who lived longer, probably went on to do these really interesting things, and yet yeah. it sort of gets lost. Yeah, it, it often reminds me too of you know the case of Black Wall Street because oftentimes yeah. those stories, um, even though there wasn't like this you know horrible massacre that it was related to his life, it still becomes an afterthought in the sense of we get caught up in the mundaneness of the routine of of the American life just getting by, you know, just mm -hmm. surviving, going to school, trying to put some food on the table. And oftentimes I think that we'll assume that our stories just probably aren't as relevant in mm -hmm. American history because, you know, what makes his story different than another, you know, entrepreneur from that time period? It's just the, re the, re the, the relevance we assume 
uh, that it has, or just the fact that we may have seen a documentary on something, or again, those pictures mean a lot. Um, having mm -hmm. that book means a lot. So oftentimes, it's about who documents their history the most. But you know, I've I've seen it time and time again. I was studying a story one time about a black woman who sued for reparations um, following enslavement, and there was a recent article about her descendants finding out about that. And often, and when you find out about something like that, whether you know for good or bad, it empowers you to want to do more and then yeah. correct it today. You know. So um, I found this story going on a history tour, you know, in Williamsburg on a walking tour. This white lady tells me the story and me, I'm with my family and I'm over here paying attention, but I'm like, pause. And I'm trying to put this stuff in my phone because I'm going to look this up later. Yeah. But I didn't find it in the book. She told me this and I was just, you know, so enamored by it. When you asked me, I'm like, well, I have to tell it. So this is how we used to tell stories, you know, yeah. and the benefit we have now is, and I think, you know, Emily, our task is we're really the first generation that's taking the time to really document this excess of information, mm -hmm. even more so than TV shows or even more so than PBS did. And this is how we keep these stories alive, you know? Yeah. And I think it's also just a reminder that like history, like History's still happening, not, I mean, in the sense that, like, we're going to become part of history, but also the practice of, like, going into the past and figuring things out is still happening. It's so yeah, funny, like, yeah. how many people think, like, well, we already know. We already know everything that happened. George Washington was the first president, and then this year, blah, blah, blah. And there's a lot of people who think that, for example, bringing up stories like this, they talk about it and they call it sometimes like revisionist history or woke history. Like we're going back and trying to change history. And it's like, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. This history already existed. We're just right. uncovering it again, right? Like exactly. we're not attempting to now erase other parts of history that we've learned, but this is a story that had always existed and just was forgotten. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I'm curious, like what's your interpretation or your take on why I don't know, students in a U.S. history class hearing about the story of Sam Harris or having him as a little pop out in their textbook. Why is that important? Like, what does that do for us? Yeah. So, you know, speaking, I'll speak from two different perspectives. Um, you know, as a I'll, I'll speak as a child, being a black child in school. The reason why what I do that I'm realizing is so important is because I'm trying to change the um, I'm trying to change what you refer to in your mind when you think of blackness. Mm -hmm. So like we're often taught these tales of like the, the myth of the, the black thug and the black criminal and we're taught about Africa didn't have history and this and that, mm -hmm. you know, and so our unconscious bias or implicit bias will have us like think of something instantly when something's mentioned because we've been programmed that way. Yeah. So like I want to overload people with these examples because then when you think of, you know, entrepreneur, enterprise, when you think of, of service as an entrepreneur. I want people to think of people like Sam Harris. I want people to think of folks, you know, like a Booker T. Washington or like, you know, as a scholar, W.E.B. Du Bois. Yeah. And when you see this as an example, you find out too, it's like, well, Virginia, you know, this was a, a slave state, right? And so you, you, your mind would say that wouldn't even be possible. But mm -hmm. so to find your place in that narrative says, oh, that, that's me too. That's like somebody you like being at a DMV and they finally call your number. You're like, oh, finally, <laughs> finally, you got to me. I'm yeah. here. People yeah. have to see themselves. And I think it's even beyond Sam Harris, because what I would say is we can really nip this in the bud if more students across the country just learn local history. That was one of my yeah. biggest gripes. Right. Because I, I feel like, yeah, learn about all the presidents, learn about all these congressmen. But like I want to learn about the guy 
who was just who was here regular guy that was here in 1800 who exists where i am like i learned about a guy not to get too sidetracked but there was a guy where i live now in joliet right outside of chicago um named henry belt hmm. i believe that's the name henry belt but the most important thing is he ran away from enslavement and found his way in joliet in the 1830s and he became very, very popular, right? There's even less information about him than Sam Harris, so I couldn't talk about him for a long time. Yeah. But, like, he started a barber shop, cutting black folks' hair, white folks' hair, very popular guy in all communities. But some slave catchers come from the St. Louis region. They capture him. They want to sell him back to slavery. Um, when the trial starts, the white folks who were there with him, because we had, a, like, a, a, a strong network of the Underground Railroad in Will County near Chicago, mm -hmm. they sneak him out the back door. Never to be heard from again. I learned that story like halfway through my teaching career in Joliet. And I was just, and, and again, you know, you probably had the same thing. You immediately say, dang, I wish I could have taught my other kids this. Yes. But it's like to know that that happened is cool. But then to know what happened here, it's like, wow. So that it's always real. It's real, right? It and makes then, it real. You know, and, and speaking from when I taught white kids this history, it besides the fact that it's undoing the implicit bias we're taught, but it also lets them know like what the role is in dismantling these systems and being yeah. anti-racist because I posed this question before, like why aren't we normally taught about white folks who are anti-slavery, anti-racist? And if you can't see yourself, no matter who you are, if a black child, if a Hispanic child, indigenous child, Asian child, if a woman can't see themselves in the fight you're talking about, there, there's no interest in me watching this boxing match unless I see somebody that looks like me, especially at like a young age. Yeah. Now, maybe not as much, but at a young age, I got to see myself participate in the fight for justice. I love that's such an amazing explanation. And I, I that really makes me think, too. I've never thought about it this way of like representation of white activists. Right. It's just as important because, yeah, yeah if you think about um, if you think about that. If I, I came from, you know, a very white suburb, very white school, um, my first real experience with a lot of diversity wasn't really until I got into college. And so I think about my education and when I thought about what it meant to be an activist, it felt really big. It felt really big. You had to be like this big name. You had to be a Susan B. Anthony or a Frederick Douglass, right? I mean, it just felt yeah. really daunting. And then to realize, like you said with this other guy, what was his name? Belt? Something Belt? Yeah, Henry Belt. Henry Belt. Like, that's an example of, okay, well, an activist could also be, is there a black member of your community who's getting mistreated? And do you step up? For them do you speak for them do yeah. you help them yeah. kind of when they need help like that's also being an activist and so it also sort of demystifies this where history is not just these like george washington's right it's just regular people making decisions and that's yeah. why i love these stories that are quote unquote smaller stories like sam harris because like you're saying mm -hmm. it just normalizes it also normalizes nuance because i just think you know we have to right when we're teaching 15 year olds we have to sort of oversimplify to some extent yeah. But it's always nice to throw a wrench in it and go, well, okay, sure, yeah, white supremacy, these redeemer governments, like yeah. the rise of Jim Crow. But also, let me tell you about this story just so you can remember that yeah. everything's more complicated than it seems. Accurate. Very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, I'm curious, as we're wrapping up, is there anything else that you found when you were learning about Sam Harris or when you were kind of at Williamsburg or wherever that, that you just want to tell more people about? Any other, like, fun facts? Um... To me, I, I just, I just, I thought one of the most interesting things was just kind of the fact that, you know, really that rags to riches story. Mm -hmm. But then also too, I'm just really curious um, about the idea that he donated so much money 
to help restore this college. Me too. That, that's something that I would have really wanted to know, like in terms of having a book or something like that. I would have loved to delve into his mind. Um, and, and, and I know that the College of William & Mary is doing a lot more to talk about him now. Mm-hmm. But I just think that, you know, from my perspective, a lot should be done to honor his legacy. And I just think that if we are missing out on that story from colonial Williamsburg, colonial America, uh, the, you know, the foundation of our history here, um, just imagine what else we don't know. So I, I just yeah. really, you know, implore people and encourage them to do some local research. Let Sam Harris's story, you know, serve as like a catapult to look up things that are happening in your area. Especially in a city like Williamsburg that, like you said, has like dedicated itself to history, right? I mean, that's like their main thing now is history and the fact that um, still there are these stories coming out that even are somewhat new to them. Yeah, Yeah. I would love to know more about him donating to the college because I can also see that being a somewhat controversial move. I can see, right, we have these debates between Booker T. Washington and Du Bois and I can see it almost seems like later on the debates between like Dr. King and Malcolm X of like to what extent do we want to support and rebuild and integrate into the white institutions like college of william and mary and to what extent do we just want to found our own historically black colleges or whatever so i that would be so i'm sure there were such fascinating conversations around that around like is this ultimately going to be good because it's going to kind of show that black entrepreneurs can contribute and are willing to contribute to the general community but i'm sure there were lots of black people at the time going why are you wasting your money there right why aren't you spending it somewhere else yeah, Hampton, Hampton was right down the street, you know, yeah. you think about it. <laughs> and you'll probably, we'll probably never know, but we can yeah. assume that a lot of those conversations were being had and were fascinating. Yeah. So, oh man. Okay. So I love this. I've never heard of this guy. I also want to clarify because we found this too, that there is another Sam Harris. So if you want to go and research this guy more, you're going to want to put Sam Harris Williamsburg because there's a current like podcaster, philosopher, very well-known guy named Sam Harris, and this is not the same person. You'll figure that out very quickly if you go to his Wikipedia page. But um, but where should we follow you for more information on this? Because this is like your bread and butter, I will just say to anyone listening, like this is what you do is you like unearth these incredible stories, especially from black history. So where can people go to find more of this stuff? Yeah, um, I would assume you all have a TikTok or Instagram. I'm somewhere where you are. If yeah. it's TikTok and Instagram, is at MRCrim3. Um, Facebook, let's not even talk about it. I'm on there, but I don't post a lot. Me neither. Uh, <laughs> LinkedIn, I, I like the LinkedIn space. So I'm, I'm all, Mr. Krim3, ErnestCrim.com, info at ErnestCrim.com for email. So. Awesome. Yeah. And I will just say too, that you also like you speak, if people want to kind of invite you to come speak or you have your book, Black History Saved My Life. You have the other book, the a- what is it? The ABCs of, of affirming black children, of yes. affirming black children, which I just realized is ABC. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. See, that was, that was Not, dumb. But a lot, like, a that lot was... of people don't get that. <laughs> I think you might be the first one that said that. Actually. Well, saying it out loud, I'm sure that when you see it, like on the cover, it makes sense. But saying it out loud, I was like, oh, what a coincidence. It's ABC. <laughs> purpose yeah. oh man that's amazing <laughs> okay well thank you so much for coming thank you for thank teaching you. me about this this was incredible thank you oh my gosh wasn't that story incredible and wasn't mr Grimm amazing i love listening to him talk sorry by the way if the audio i don't know how much ryan was able to fix in post as we professional podcasters say sorry if the audio was a little bit funky i didn't realize that my mic was like very different than his until after the fact 
because, you know, I'm just a humble history teacher. But Sam Harris, so fascinating. Now, unfortunately, we don't have any pictures of him, so I can't necessarily cast him in the future biopic of his life. But I will just say in general that, like, if I had to cast someone to play him in this movie, I'm going to go with Lakeith Stanfield. I don't know if you know who that is. You know who it is. He's in Get Out. There's, like, a lot of movies that he's in. He's kind of, like, my favorite, one of my favorite actors at the moment. And I don't know what Sam Harris looks like, but, like, I think Lakeith could do it. So anyway... As always, thanks for listening. Please go join patreon.com slash antisocial studies and just like share this podcast far and wide. Share it with students, friends, family. Um, Make sure that if you're talking about this podcast, feel free to tag me on TikTok or Instagram or threads now, which is a thing we're all on. Anyway, talk to you soon. Bye.